chapter 3, so we've got 42,360 uh, returnees coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we'll pick up there in chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord as well as those, uh, those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation for the temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they could bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, the king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the people, all the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the family of Israel Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So pretty straightforward. So the Israelites get back. After a couple of months, they gather at the site of the old temple. So just for clarity, the first temple, uh, we'll call it, it's called Solomon's Temple. He's the one that built it. It was extravagant, and it was grand. This temple, Zerubbabel's Temple, some people call it that. Some people call it the second temple because it was the second one built. Not nearly as grand and smaller. Uh, and then about 500 years after Zerubbabel rebuilds this temple, Herod renovates it completely. And so that's known as Herod's temple. That's the temple that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's the temple that Jesus walked around in. It's this temple that we're going to read about in Ezra. It's just been completely 
remodeled and renovated by Herod. He's made it much more extravagant and bigger than what we're going to read about in Ezra. So Solomon's temple is the first one. The second temple is the one that we're going to read about. And then Herod's temple is the, the one in the New Testament times that was destroyed uh, by the Romans in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. So these guys, they gather on the site of Solomon's temple. And the first thing they do on the holiest month uh, in the Jewish calendar are September, October. They rebuild the altar. Sometimes when we think altar, we think like a rail up in the front, not at all. So if they built this altar on Solomon's blueprint, and there's no reason to think that they didn't, they actually built it on the exact same spot, it was 900 square feet, 30 by 30, with, uh, it was 15 feet off the ground, steps to get up to it. Massive structure. And it was the central place of worship for the people. A lot of action happened in the temple itself, but a lot of that action was reserved for Levites, who were temple workers, and for priests. The people, they, they, most of their worship was centered around the altar. That's where they brought their offerings, and that's where they brought their sacrifices. It was the place where they met God. So that's the first thing that they do corporately. They get back, they get settled for, a, for just a couple of months, and they gather back at the site of Solomon's temple. And on the place where Solomon, uh, that, that original altar was, they rebuild. And again, every indication is that they rebuilt according to the same blueprint. So 30 by 30 square, 15 feet high, set up for sacrifices and offering, central place of worship for the people. They're done with that after planting season and rainy season. They Second month of the second year, they start rebuilding the temple. And they start with the foundation. That's where you start at the beginning. And you have this mixed result. The people who are young who see it are thrilled. They've never seen the temple before. They were born in Babylon. They've never seen it. And they're overjoyed at the fact that this temple that they've heard so much about is now being rebuilt. The older folks, the folks who had seen Solomon's temple, they're weeping. We don't know exactly why. But best guess is it's just not as, it's not as grand. They didn't have the money that the Persians are paying for this, and they just didn't put the money into it that Solomon put into it. So the materials are not quite as grand, and it's a, it's a bit on a smaller scale. It's just not as impressive as the temple that they remember. Their temple's being rebuilt, but it's not exactly the same. And so you have this mix of weeping and rejoicing. We'll talk about that some more in a couple of weeks when we look at Haggai. And then you have opposition that arises as well. So again, just a bit of history. Remember, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two. Northern kingdom called Israel or sometimes Samaria. Southern kingdom, Judah. Northern kingdom, always wicked. They are exiled by the Assyrians in 722. So the Assyrians conquer those northern ten tribes and they deport just about everybody. One of their things when they conquer uh, uh, an, an area is they exile the people and then they import or they settle foreigners in the land. They're just trying to dilute the population and they're trying to keep people from forming a rebellion. So you send out, so we take over Smyrna, we send out everybody who's native to Smyrna and we send in a bunch of people from Mableton and Austell and Powder Springs. That's what we're doing. So that's what the Assyrians do. And so the people who settle... Around Samaria, they become known as Samaritans. And over the course of history, there's great animosity that develops between the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans in 
Samaria. You see some of that in the Gospels. Like think about Jesus and the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. This is where that group of people gets their start. They were imported foreigners who were settled in the northern kingdom and they started worshiping God to a degree but not fully. They followed the God of Israel to a degree, but not all the way. They worshipped other gods. They believed in the, just the first five books of the Old Testament, not the rest. All of that develops later, but there's animosity even early. And so you've got the, these are the guys that are providing a lot of the opposition. It's the locals. They're not necessarily native Jews. They're just guys that have been settled. And they've been there for a couple of hundred years, uh, but they've been, they were settled there by the Assyrians, and they intimidate the Jews. And so the work on the temple stops for 16 or 17 years, from Cyrus all the way down to Darius. Those are two kings. And next week we're going to look at the opposition and kind of what that, how that played out over the course of those 16 or 17 years. The, the main question I want you thinking about today is, where is your altar? The altar was super significant. Again, it's this place where people meet God. So the altar is connected to the temple. The temple is in Jerusalem. So for 70 years, the Jews had not been able to worship God in the way that God desired to be worshipped. I'm not saying they never connected with God for 70 years, but they did not worship him in the ways that he prescribed in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, in the law. It's not there because the, the, the central feature of old covenant worship is sacrifices and offerings. You can't do that without an altar and a temple. And the Jews didn't have that in Babylon. There was no Jewish temple. There was no Jewish altar. So for 70 years, for some people, their entire life, they'd never worshiped God in the ways that God said, this is how you worship me. Remember covenant, that's just a, that's a word for the terms of a relationship. And under the Old Covenant, God said, here are the terms. Here's what it looks like for you to worship me. You've read in Leviticus and Numbers, your eyes glaze over when you start reading about the burn offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering and the peace offering and the free will offering. And it's got to be a, a, a sheep, a one-year-old and no blemishes and no defects and this much olive oil and this much grain. And we, get, we just kind of glaze over and blow through that because it doesn't necessarily connect with us. That's God saying, here's what it looks like for you to worship me. I want you to worship. In the morning, you offer this burnt offering. And in the evening, you offer this burnt offering. That's what the Levites and the priests did all day long was they were slaughtering animals. The morning and the evening sacrifice. Then on Saturday, the Sabbath, this is what you offer. And then on the new moon, the first of every month, this is what you offer. And then we have these three great festivals every year where everybody travels to Jerusalem. And they bring offerings with them. And for a whole week, you're celebrating, whether it's Passover or the Festival of Tabernacles that we read about here. There are three major festivals. The, their whole calendar is wrapped around worship. And worship is centered in the altar. And sometimes they're bringing grain, and sometimes they're bringing wine, and sometimes they're bringing sheep. And sometimes there's cows, calves that are being slaughtered. Sometimes they're bringing money, and then they're changing that for animals. That's Remember Jesus turning over the table of the money changers? It's because that sacrificial system, that was the core element of what it meant for the people to worship God. It meant to bring him something, an offering. And then oftentimes that offering was an animal that was killed, a sacrifice. 
Every sacrifice was an offering, but not every offering was a sacrifice. You can think about that when you're leaving. And it's central, and there were people who'd never had the opportunity to worship God the way he said to worship him, ever. And nobody had done it for 70 years. And now here they are. They, the, so the first thing they do is they rebuild this altar because that means they can worship again. That means that they can engage with God in the ways that he is prescribed for them. The altar stands in front of the temple because the, kind of the visual is you can't get to the temple until you first stop at the altar. There's got to be a sacrifice before you can enter into the presence of God. We know that the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrew says, it doesn't cleanse our hearts from sin, but it was, an, it was a visible and outward and tangible picture of God extending forgiveness to his people. So then they could enter into his presence, which was symbolized by the temple, the house where God was said to dwell. Now all of that is possible. That has not been possible for 70 years. Now they can offer the sacrifices again. Now they can engage in this worship that reminds them that God is merciful and gracious and forgives them of their sins. We live under the new covenant. It's a better covenant, 100%. We, we don't have to bring, none of you brought an animal here. No, you didn't. We're not killing any. We're not doing that. We don't have to anymore because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. Everything that it represented, he embodied and fulfilled, and so then he set it aside. No longer are the, uh, the, for the forgiveness of sins, the animals need to be sacrificed anymore. The blood of Jesus cleanses us not just outwardly, but inwardly. Gives us a clean conscience. We receive a new heart. God gives us a new heart. It's a better covenant. We know that we can worship God anywhere. We don't have to go to an altar in a temple in a particular city. We know we can worship God anywhere and at any time. There's so much access that we have available to us, but I'm afraid that for many of us, that ease of access, rather than encouraging intimacy and authenticity in our relationship and worship of God, it actually just means we can put it off. We can wait. When was the last time you missed Christmas? The answer is never. You've never missed it once in your life, and you're never going to. There's something about the the structure of old covenant worship. You didn't miss it. It was all external, super easy to get in autopilot, to not engage your heart, super difficult to forget. When the whole country shuts down for a week because it's Passover, you don't forget. You don't miss that. You may not engage, but you don't overlook when there's this rhythm of worship, every morning and every evening, animals are being sacrificed. Every week, animals are being sacrificed. Every month, animals are being sacrificed. When you, you're giving to that, even if you're not physically in Jerusalem, you're giving to that. And then you're physically going once or three times a year. There's a structure to your life around worshiping God. And for us, because we can worship Him anywhere, at any time, and in any place... There's no structure. And so for many of us, again, it doesn't encourage intimacy. It actually encourages apathy. Structure's not necessarily bad. We think of that and it sounds so legalistic and confining and we don't want anybody telling us what to do. 
But there's something about the structure, I think, that can be really helpful. And so I want to ask you again, where's your altar? Where's the place in your life where you are regularly meeting God? Where is that? Some of you, uh, COVID wrecked a lot of lives. For some of you, it was much more disruptive than others. And it disrupted not just your work life or your financial life, your home life. Or it, it disrupted your spiritual life. It's been six months, and for some of us, we still haven't gotten our bearings. We're still not kind of back to where we were six months ago. And I don't know that looking back is super helpful. I certainly don't think just kind of saying, well, this will be over at some point is very helpful either. I know that hope is a plan. What does it look like for us to say, in the midst of whatever it is that your life looks like now, to say, I've got to figure out what it looks like for me to create an altar. There's got to be a place where I'm meeting with God regularly. I think you can think about that two ways, corporately and personally. Obviously, if you're in the room, then you're comfortable gathering together corporately, at least in this size. And so you've got this, and we're so thankful that you're here. I want to encourage you to continue to come, but there are plenty of you who are watching who it's not smart for you to come. There's no reason for you to show up in a group this size yet. It's not wise for you. I would encourage you if, if you're in that spot and you can't gather yet with a larger group, what does it look like for you? Are there, are there three or four or five folks that you could pull together that you feel comfortable with? And a couple of times a month, just a really simple corporate expression, 10 minutes of worship, just play it on Spotify, read one chapter of the Bible together, and then just ask two simple questions. What's it saying? What does that mean to me? And then pray for each other. It's an hour. If you do that a couple of times a month, that's establishing an altar in your life in the midst of a COVID world. If you're, if you're not in a spot where you can get together in a group like this, what would it look like for you to begin to pull that together? If you want that, you're not sure how to Make that happen. I'm speaking to you who are online. Reach out to Matt, and he can help you pull that together. But for many of you, there are some people that you're comfortable being with. And maybe that's, you can do that outside, whatever the protocols are that make you most comfortable. But I would say engage there. Figure out what that looks like. And if there's nobody, if you're in complete kind of lockdown mode, then do it with the people who are in your home. But begin to establish that corporate altar. And you read the Psalms, corporate worship, kind of what we just did, really important. When you read, we just got through with Revelation, corporate worship's really important. There's something about being together as the body. Now, there's another group, and those are people who are choosing not to. It's not because they can't, but because they won't. And honestly, I don't understand that fully. Uh, people have convictions, particularly around wearing masks, and I'm I don't know how to address that. Um, with all sincerity, I don't understand that why you would forego gathering together for worship because you don't want to wear a mask for a few minutes. But if that's your conviction, then you need to do the same thing. And that's not a can't. You can't gather. You just won't. And I would say, well, figure it out. Figure out what that looks like. And honestly, I would challenge you around the reason why you're staying back. If it's not for health reasons, if it's just around where you're, whether you should be, where, where, how you feel about wearing a mask, I would really encourage you before the Lord to ask him and say, is this an okay reason to pull myself out of corporate worship? And if he says yes, then don't violate your conscience. But then call me and let me know that he's the one that told you yes.
Second thing I would say, and we're moving towards ministry. No, let me say this. Personal. Forgot that. Your personal altar. This gets really messed up. Many of you were raised in a church. You heard about devotions and quiet times and you got all of the steps and it feels really heavy. There is some truth in that. The, the regular meeting with God is really important. And so let me just real quick, three times a week. If you say every day you're going to fail and then you're going to feel terrible and you're going to quit. Let's go for three days a week, 15 minutes a day. That's it. Super simple format. One song, one chapter, one minute of silence, and then pray through your day. That's it. It's 15 minutes. One song, one chapter, one minute of silence, pray through your day. If you're a night person and you do that at night, then you can, you can either pray about your next day, your tomorrow, or you can pray about the day you just had. Kind of reviewing it, but with the Lord. Doesn't matter. All you're doing is inviting him into the day. Begin to do that just three times a week. You're building an altar. You need that corporate altar and you need the personal, the individual altar. You need both of those things. And so I want to encourage you to start practicing that. Again, their, their structure can easily become legalistic. But without it, when we're kind of left to our own, there's nothing in the world that we live in that encourages you to meet with God. Nothing. Most of what we experience in our life pulls us away from him. There's so many things that, so many distractions, and many of them are wonderful and they're good. If you don't have a set, to me, there's something about a set time and a set place. I don't have to think about it. Mine is right there. Sunday to Thursday, I sit in that chair. It's my place. I don't have to worry. I don't think about what time do I need to wake up tomorrow. I don't need to think about where I'm going to go. Half the time when I'm driving here, I'm not even fully awake. It's early. Nobody is on the road. It's safe. But just kind of being in that pattern, it just takes all of those decisions away and I can just show up and be here. There's something about that. And for many of you, that's become more difficult with COVID. Your little people are in your house all the time now and you don't have any space. And you got to figure that out. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying it's been six months. It's going to be at least six more. Figure it out. Build the altar. Wake up 15 minutes earlier. Stay up 15 minutes later. Put them in front of the TV for 15 minutes. It's not going to kill them. If you can pull away and be with God, you'll go back a better parent. What does it look like for you to build that altar? Last thing, and then we're, as we close. I was thinking about that laying the foundation. That's an obvious thing. You have to build a foundation before you can build a building. Uh, I was thinking foundations, which made me think of cornerstone. Jesus is our cornerstone. This is just a springboard. It's not necessarily rooted in Ezra. But I was thinking about, again, people's lives over the last six months. And I feel like people are starting to fray. And maybe that's you. And maybe that's been going on for a while and I'm just noticing it. Levels of anxiety are up. And again, there just seems to be a raggedness and an edginess to people. And it made me think of that idea of Jesus is our cornerstone. And a cornerstone, it's, it's the first block that's laid in a foundation of a building. And when we think of it now, and there's a picture on the screen, it almost feels just symbolic. Like, oh, this is a stone and we get to write on it and it's something that we remember. It was in biblical times, super important. First stone that was laid and every other stone on the foundation, in the foundation, was based and was laid in reference to that stone. It's what kept the walls straight. 
and the foundation square, which meant the building was stable. It wasn't symbolic. It was essential. And so I ask you this morning, is Jesus your cornerstone? Of course, on some level, he is for all of you. You wouldn't be here. But is he the reference point for all of your decisions? And the answer, of course, is no. None of us follow him perfectly. There are times where we make decisions based on selfish ambition and vain conceit. Paul talks about that in Philippians. We make decisions based on fear or based on the expectations either we have for ourselves or others have for us. We make decisions based on, honestly, just what we want at times. What's efficient? What's expedient? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not Jesus as the cornerstone. That's something else as a cornerstone. And so as we close, Kaylee's going to come back and she's going to lead in a time of ministry. And this is what I want you thinking about. One, do you need to establish an altar in your life? And if you do, just commit to it. Don't feel guilty. Don't think about the times. Just commit moving forward. And if you need help, reach out and we'll help you. The second thing I want to say is, is Jesus, I want to ask you to be thinking about is, is Jesus your cornerstone? When you think through the different facets of your life, so think through your work, your primary relationships, think about how you're dealing with stress and how you're spending your time and money. Those four areas. Work, primary relationships, how you're dealing with stress, that seems to be the one that's gotten super squirrely over the last six months. Not dealing with stress well. And then how you're spending your time and money. And just ask, be honest, Holy Spirit, is Jesus my cornerstone? Is he my reference point? Am I making decisions in these areas of my life in reference to him? Am I aligning these decisions with his character and with his values? Yes or no? And again, the answer is not always going to be yes because none of us follow perfectly. So it's, this isn't, you're not trying to get an A. You're just trying to be honest and say, the, the, it, it's okay occasionally There's grace and there's mercy for us. Where it becomes troublesome is over time. If we are continually making decisions that are not aligned with Jesus, then the whole foundation of our life gets shaky. Again, cornerstone is not sweet. It's essential. And that's what I think I'm seeing. I think we've had six months of people making small decisions that are not fully in line with Jesus, and now they've got a wall that's wonky. In their marriage or their relationship with their kids, or the way they're treating their people at work, or their finances, or how much they're drinking, or like it's all gotten, it's getting shaky. And it's because we've lost sight of Jesus as the cornerstone. And so I want to give you an opportunity just to to review prayerfully your own life, led by the Holy Spirit in that, not guilt, and then to recommit to Him as your cornerstone. Uh, So this uh, altar... The stage will be open. You can come and kneel. One of these blue pieces of tape that will keep you a little bit spread out. If you're kneeling, then that's a signal to us that you're okay with somebody praying for you. And so me or uh, Kim with masks on will lay a hand on your back. We won't talk to you, but we will put a hand on your back and pray for you. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not comfortable coming forward, you don't want to do that, please just you can stay in your chairs. You can either flip around and kneel on them or just bow your head. Uh, You don't need to necessarily sing along with Kaylee. We'll let her sing over us. I want you uh, really dealing with the Lord. So uh, pray with me. We've got got about eight minutes, so I think there'll be plenty of time. So the, the two big questions. First one, 
Where's your altar? And if you don't have an answer, don't, don't feel bad. Because I don't have one. We don't want to lose the freedom that we have under the new covenant. It's wonderful that we don't have to drive, fly to Jerusalem with some lambs in storage to offer them. It's great. The freedom that we have to access the Father from anywhere and anytime. Some of you are kind of, I'm a pray as I go. Wonderful. Don't lose that. I want to say in addition to pray as you go. Create an altar. The only issue I see with pray as you go is a lot of times you're doing something else. It's not dedicated time. And there's something about dedicated time where you're not focused on another task. Where your attention is not divided. It's really special. It's really important. So where's your altar? If you don't have one, just commit in your heart. God, help me. I want to establish an altar in my life. If you're watching online, it makes you nervous to gather with people. Say that, God, I want to reestablish a corporate altar in my life. I'm not comfortable going to church on a Sunday. What does it look like? What do you want me to do? How do I be faithful and wise? We're not asking you to do anything stupid or risky. Personal life, God, what does that look like? can't figure out how to carve out even 15 minutes. I need your help. I have the desire. You got to help me do it. And he will. Second question, is Jesus your cornerstone? And don't think just generally. Is he your cornerstone at work? Do you make your work decisions in reference to Jesus? In your home, You make the decisions in your home, your primary relationships, friends and family. Do you make those decisions in reference to Jesus? How are you dealing with stress right now? Are you making those decisions in reference to Jesus? What about how you're spending your time and your money? you making those in reference to Jesus. So just, if you're willing, Holy Spirit, search me and know me. Show me the places where I'm getting, I'm, I'm laying some bricks here and they're not quite lined up. I don't want my, the, the whole house of my life to come crashing down. So in your kindness and in your mercy, would you show me the places where my foundation is shaky? Because I'm making decisions that are not in reference to Jesus as my cornerstone. And if you bring something to mind, just confess that. Agree with him. Repent. And ask him to help you. You don't have to do it on your own. God, give me grace. You know how hard? It's super hard for me. In this area of my life. I work in this cutthroat environment. And it's incredibly difficult for me to treat people the way you want me to treat them, Jesus. Because then I'm going to get passed by. I'm not going to get the promotion. Whatever those things are, just acknowledge that before him and ask him to help you. And he will. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak to every man and woman, every student in this room? I pray for each one of us that that, that we would build an altar in our life and honestly the best part of our day would be meeting you there. 
God, we pray for those particularly who are, they're just not in a spot where they can meet with people. God, would you show them what that looks like in their own life? Six months without corporate interaction, God, would you have mercy on them? Show us how to lovingly and kindly reach out, provide avenues. And God, I pray for every one of us in our personal life. Jesus, that you would be our cornerstone. So come and minister to us, I pray.